Welcome to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. I am also the co-founder of Path 11 Productions. And aside from podcasting, we also make great films and documentaries, which can be found at path11productions.com. We have a special promo code just for our podcast listeners. The promo code is PATH11PODCAST, and if you go to our website, PATH11PRODUCTIONS.COM, and visit our shop page, put that promo code in, and you will receive 50% off of our Evolution DVD, which is the third film in our PATH Trilogy series. If you would like to become a sponsor of the PATH11 Podcast, please email me at info at PATH11PRODUCTIONS.COM. And now for this week's show. joined with our guest, Clementina Marie Giovanetti, and she was born with an extraordinary gift of sight and profound wisdom about all spiritual matters. She wrote and self-published her first book in 1973 entitled Five Finger Balance, which established her many on-air appearances on over a thousand national radio and television shows, and also launched her private practice as a spiritual counselor and healer. Back in the 70s and 80s, she was also recognized as a spiritual maverick and pioneer who brought spirituality to the airwaves. Today, we're going to be talking about her most recent book, Jesus and a Roman Centurion, a Past Life Memoir. So welcome, Clementina. Yes, thank you so much for having me as your guest today. Yeah, so you've been around for a while, and I bet you have many, many stories. <laughs> I've actually been called a dinosaur a few times. You know, when I started broadcasting back in the 70s, I was, well, my first book, The Five Finger Balance, I was 17, 18 years of age, and all the hosts, male predominantly, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Times have changed. Now, I'm in the 60s, and all my hosts are predominantly in their 20s and 30s, so it, right. it's changed, yeah. The, the format yeah. has really changed. Yeah, well, I'm a little bit older. I'm in my 40s, but I would say when you had your first book pub- published, I was not even a thought yet, so. <laughs> you were still that's traveling great. somewhere, yeah, in the astral planes, yeah. It, I was. It, it was I quite was. exciting, it really was, and I was, um, this lifetime I incarnated, uh, I decided to incarnate in a girl's body, and it has certainly been a challenge, um, and very exciting one as well, uh, to experience the different from a different perspective. Yeah, so I, I would like to definitely t- talk more about that. And when you know, I saw your pitch of your book come across my desk, a profound past life regression that that we're going to talk about here. I mean, I was just fascinated by reading um, the beginning of 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 the pitch about how you kind of woke up one morning, you go in, take a look in the mirror, and then all of a sudden there's this different figure that you're looking back at. Um, So I wanted to kind of go into a little bit about this new book that you've just released in 2017. Yes, the book just got released just a few weeks ago, and it was... um 
I was well aware, April, you know, from birth pretty much, that I was a soul, a consciousness who had lived before and had, you know, had many lifetimes before and had chosen again to incarnate and onto planet Earth and in a little girl's body. Um, but to be honest, I really didn't spend a lot of time personally as far as my own investigation. You know, I never really had past lives done before or anything like that for myself. So it was around 2002 and, you know, just normal routine, right? You get up, you go into the, to the bathroom, you know, you brush your hair, brush your teeth and ready to take your shower. And I noticed that there was this like spot on my bathroom mirror. So I just took a towel and started trying to wipe it off. And it wasn't getting wiped off. And I thought, well, it must be an imperfection. Something's wrong, you know, like a cloud into the mirror itself. And as time went on, it kept on growing and growing, April. I mean, it was getting bigger and bigger. And the next thing you know it, it took form, it took shape. It actually was a man who I actually identified at the beginning as an antiquity man. He was certainly not a modern guy today, you know, an, a geek or a tech working for IBM. I mean, this man was like a barbarian. His arms were massive. And he had very militant clothes as where that he was wearing. And of course, you know, it took my breath. And at first I just, you know, try to wipe him off or splash some cold water in my eyes and obviously with no success he continued to stare back at me and finally I asked him to identify himself and all he said to me was we need to talk that was it we need to talk and I thought well I mean what do you do argue with a man in a mirror <laughs> You know, and I'm like, okay. So I went ahead and, uh, you know, reflected on this, and then I heard it loud and clear. It's like the only way you're really going to be able to communicate and understand, you know, what this is really all about, what in fact the real purpose of this was, is to go through a past life regression. And I really didn't know anyone, so the search began, and I uh, finally found someone. I didn't say a word to her, not a word about the man in the mirror. I just said, hi, you know, my name is Clementina, and I just thought it'd be fun to have a past life regression. I mean, that was it, and I had no idea what was going to happen. And that's when really how the story begins of Jesus and a Roman centurion, a past life memoir. It actually did turn out, April, to be a past life, one of my own past lives. Yeah, so I know everybody's chomping at the bit, so tell us more. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so, so yeah, the, so you're doing this past life regression. Yeah, so I, you know, so yeah. I, yeah, I come in into her room, and, you know, she goes to the normal deep relaxation. You know, I'm sitting in a recliner, and then the next thing you know, it, you know, she does a countdown, and then there I am. I'm in a past life. And at the very beginning of the past life regression, uh, which, by the way, was recorded, and in the book, there is a link to the actual past life regression. So anyone who chooses to get a copy of the book, then they will also have the link. So they will be right there front row seats and be able to actually listen to my past life regression 
just as I did as it was unfolded. So all the, I mean, it's one thing to sit down in front of your computer and write the story and try to find human words, right, to describe what you were going through. But it's another thing that the cassette captured all those emotions, those raw emotions while it was actually unfolding. So at the very, so that's a bonus for everyone in the book. But when I first began in the past life, when the doorway basically first opened up, then there he was, the same image, the same antiquity man that I'd seen in my ear, was actually um, almost encapsulated. He was imprisoned uh, to this old chair, like really barbaric kind of handmade wooden chair that was shackled by his wrist, shackled by his ankles. And these other centurion, these Roman soldiers, were interrogating him and kept on asking him, why did you, you know, betray Caesar? Why did you betray us? You know, why didn't you bring him back? And at first I was just witnessing it. So it was a contemporary Clementina Marie Giovanetti, the little Italian petite woman, standing there literally in this cave. It was like an underground cave in the Roman uh, uh, like palace. And then all of a sudden I became him, and I became the centurion. And that's when the regressionist really got interested, too, because she was like, well, what did you do? How did you betray them? And it found out that it was during the time when Jesus was uh, had just been born, he had uh, was not even two years of age, and Herod the Great, absolutely a madman, was obsessed about the rumors that he had heard about this little boy, that this little boy named Jesus, who had just been born, was basically going to become the king of the Jews. Well, he couldn't have that, because Caesar Augustus had already proclaimed Herod the king of the Jews. So it was like, no child, right, is going to dethrone me, and that was basically it. So I don't know how many other centurion. Centurions was like, it took a long time. As we got further into the regression, I had enrolled at the age of 17 years of age in the Roman army. And at the time of the regression and what this whole actual scene takes place, I was 38 years of age and had been promoted many times to finally becoming a centurion, which back then I guess was a real big deal. And only centurions got these special military assignments by Caesar Augustus. So my assignment was to find the little boy Jesus and bring him back. And that was basically for no other reason but to please Herod. And we didn't really take it serious. We were kind of like we're centurions, you know, like a two-year-old child. I mean, like, really? And we weren't like, we didn't think anything other than that, but basically just pleasing Herod, who was a friend of Caesar. So I don't know how many other centurions were sent out, but we all had to go our individual way. And I was sent out, and of course, centurions were allowed to, to ride their horses. And of course, I describe in full detail what I look like, what I, what I wear in the book. And I don't know how many days I was on the road, but all of a sudden, I... I started feeling funny. I started feeling very disoriented and very lightheaded. And I knew it was like, this must be him. But now where is he? So I kind of just 
followed the energy, the source of the energy that was causing my disorientation. And all of a sudden, there he was. And I knew instantly it was him. Because back then, interesting as I even did some of my human research after the regression, they didn't have last names back then, April. They only used their first names. And there was no consensus done yet either. There was no tax roll. So how do you find a little two-year-old boy, Jewish boy, named Jesus, and his mom was named you know, Mary and his dad was named Joseph? But he had no last names, you had no address, you had nothing. And then how would you, and they didn't have driver's license, right? So how would you know that, in fact, that was who it was? But somehow I knew when I approached him. And I'll never forget that moment. And thank God for audio cassettes, because it really captured that moment when I was actually exposed. The best way I could describe it is beyond his presence, but his consciousness. And I think that's what my book is really talks about is each one of us and our consciousness and based upon our own evolution and where we are at as a soul, that is the frequency, the energetic frequency that we radiate as well outwardly, regardless of our human form. It doesn't matter if we have a white body, a black body, a yellow body, if it's a male body, a female body, which I talk at great length, that's all humanistic illusions, none of that matters at all. It's about our consciousness as who we really are. So should I continue on the story? Yeah, keep going. Yep. Okay. So so I got off my horse and I and I have to I have to be honest, I I felt I knew I was not in the presence of a human. As far as, now you got to remember, at that time, my consciousness was encapsulated in a human form. And I had allowed myself to become a Roman soldier and a centurion. And I was very proud of having fulfilled all of my military duties up until that point. So my sword was everything to me. And, you know, I wore it on my left side as a centurion. And it was like, you know, and I had the, the red draping cloth, you know, uh, beautiful robe in the back. Of me. I mean, it was, you know, and I had the full head, uh, helmet stat, and it was, you know, it was just like I was a centurion, right? And I was so proud having been come and allowed to become a centurion, and Rome was everything to me, which is amazing that I was able, which I talk in great length in the book about how I was able to be totally programmed by humans, how I was allowed to totally fall asleep and forget who I really was as a soul. And now that I had incarnated in a man's body 2,000 years ago, I totally allowed them to, uh, to basically make me into anything that they wanted to make me. I didn't even have my own mind. I was just an extension of Caesar Augustus. Whatever he ordered me to do, I did it, and I didn't even think twice about it. It was like, of course, you know, I'm, an, I'm nothing. There was a nothingness in my own personality. So when I finally believed that I had, in fact, found this child named Jesus, immediately the consciousness was just amazing. I knew he was not of human nature at all, even though he was in a human body. And I immediately took off my helmet, and I immediately took off my sword, and I knelt in front of him. 
Now, at that moment, him and I never said a word to each other, but we looked into each other's eyes. And all the communication that occurred was done on a soul level from that moment on. He basically allowed me to come into his consciousness, April. I experienced every part of him, but it's his consciousness. He showed me his world. He allowed me to experience his frequency. He allowed me to see people and the world through his eyes, right? And and it even though to any other person, you would say there's this little two-year-old boy, you know, right there on the side of the road. But when he allowed me, it's like his, his eyes opened and I was in his soul. And I basically was seated by him. I was, the amazing thing that happened at that moment was the Roman centurion was completely dissolved. Dissolved. It like melted it was no longer there. And all of a sudden, I became his consciousness at that moment. That was the only consciousness that I knew. It was like my soul had been dormant. My soul had been like in hibernation for at least 38 years. And he awakened it. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was like, I, ha I was looking at my own brother. It was like, I know you, you know, and I get it. It's like, what happened to me? How could they have done this to me? And like, I didn't even want to go near my sword anymore or near my helmet. And this is the, the most profound part of the audio cassette that she captured, April, was that not only was I sobbing because of the profound love that I had felt with him and experienced with him, and I'm talking a soul love, I mean like love, the epiphany of love, you know, the, the energy of love, because that's what he embraced, that's what he was, was that I, I could no longer, I couldn't accept what I had done. I was so disgusted by who I had allowed myself to become and how many people I had slayed with the sword. And then the biggest part of the cassette that she captured was the duality. I was literally losing my mind during the regression. I'm like, oh my God, how could I have allowed myself to become this? Why did I allow my, myself to become this? Because having been exposed to his consciousness, oh my God, does it put light on our human personalities? And what this very barbaric and low frequency consciousness on earth that once it gets a hold of you, what in fact it can make you do. And you, you think it's okay, and it's like a new normal, see? And we're experiencing a lot of that today as well with our president. So at the end of the day, we, we never said a word. Of course, I was never gonna betray him. I was never gonna turn him in. And I knew that I had to go back to Rome. And, and I knew I was never going to forget that moment. And as I was riding back to, to Rome, I mean, I, I was beside myself. It was like an out-of-body experience. It was like I had died, you know, and gone to heaven. I mean, I was in a completely different 
I wasn't the same man that was riding the horse to find him at all. And I didn't want to be a Roman centurion anymore. I mean, I literally hated myself. And it's not that he destroyed the Roman centurion. He just removed it from me. He just allowed my soul to come forward and out above and beyond what the personality had allowed itself to become. And so riding back to, to the Roman palace was quite a challenge for me. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say? And are they going to know? And of course, I didn't want harm to come to this little child either, because I knew he wasn't from this world. He's definitely not of this world. And I got it when, when he, you know, he said, according to the scriptures, you know, he was in the world, but not of it. I got that in the regression, definitely not of this world. And um, so when I finally came back, of course, they were all waiting for me, and they were looking for this little two-year-old boy to be saddled, you know, on my horse, and he wasn't there. And they knew it immediately. The moment, April, they saw me, the moment they looked into my eyes and my face, they knew. They knew something had happened because they, according to them, it was like, it was almost like I had seen God or I'd seen another world or I'd seen heaven. And I'm not trying to use like, you know, the common terminologies, but they knew that I had been exposed to something not of this world. And they brought me in and then we start all over again. They had basically chained me to this chair in the lower regions of the dungeon of the Roman palace, and I was basically being interrogated of where is this child Jesus, and what happened. April, I couldn't say a word. Not a word. I I was silent the whole entire time. So for the first hour or so, the interrogation lasted about four hours. Now remember, I'm a Roman centurion. I've been with them since 17 years of age. I had a legion of 100 men uh, that I was in charge of. I've been in all these battles for Caesar of Augusta and have won them. I was sent out to find a two-year-old child. Now, how difficult is it to find and retrieve a two-year-old child, right, when you're a Roman centurion? I mean, and then I come back and I don't have him, and then I come back and I'm silent, and I refuse to say a word. So for the first hour, it was all about Jesus. Like, did you find him? Where was he? Who is he with? What does he look like? You know, what did he say? It was that, and I didn't say anything. Then after an hour, when I refused to say anything, now it was really, really getting to these men. Because they were like, what are they dealing with? How can right. a two-year-old child, right, do this to a Roman centurion? And what did he do to you? What did he do to you? I mean, this is a child, right? So you got to come from the perspective of Roman military men. They couldn't understand it. It was so beyond their mind. And that's when they really started freaking out. They really started freaking out because they knew they were afraid and they were out of control. They lost me after 38 years. They sent a centurion out to find a child. I mean, like, duh, like you can handle it, right? And then I come back, and just the look in my eyes and the look in my face, and then my silence, and that basically I betrayed everything that I had become, everything that I was, betrayed my country, my government, my emperor, I betrayed everything. 
And, of course, I knew what that was going to mean as a Roman centurion. I knew that I was going to be executed because that's betrayal. You, you can't do that. And so, after four hours of interrogation, I could say it changed from maybe, you know, uh, Herod's got something here. You know, because everybody thought he was just crazy, just making a bunch of nonsense about this two-year-old kid. Maybe there really is something to this kid, because I was obviously the first kind of like um, exposure to this child that they had proof, like he does have an effect here. How could he have done this to one of our own men like this? So they asked me how I wanted to be executed, and I chose to be beheaded. And within the same day, I mean literally within the same day, 24 hours from the time that I found him and knelt down before him, I was beheaded for my betrayal. And of course we know the history. You know, he did get to live to be an, an, a young adult, uh, you know, in his young 30s. He didn't uh, start his ministry, though, until he was about 29 or 30. And his ministry only lasted a couple years. I mean, that was it. And then we know what they did to him as well. So the basis of the book is a lot of things. And it talks about my reincarnation. And it talks about that in this lifetime, uh, my parents <laughs> were Roman Catholic, and they had a really difficult time with me because, of course, they were alcoholics, um, very violent. They, there was constant beatings and brawls between them on a nightly basis. Um, I was also brought up in Chicago in um, the projects called Cabrini Greens area. And so I was pretty much like the only little white girl, for the most part, in the neighborhood. And it was very violent. And by the time I was five, six years old, I had brass knuckles. I had an, a, a blade. I had pepper spray. I kept my hair cut like a little boy. I dressed like a little boy. Um, it was very, very violent in Chicago. And the gangs were everywhere. And girls were constantly getting raped, gang raped. There were murders all the time, uh, shootings all the time. Uh, and then I had to contend with my father and my grandfather who had sexually assaulted me from the time I was about four or five years old. So my life really flipped. I went from a Roman centurion <laughs> who, you know, was proud at the moment for establishing what I did to meeting this little boy dying for him because I wouldn't turn him in and then I reincarnate in this lifetime but I was awakened in this lifetime everything that he shared with me everything he seated with me when he opened up his soul and he allowed me to come into his consciousness that became my consciousness and so imagine being reincarnated in a little Italian girl's body in the middle of the ghetto <laughs> back on earth again thousand years later imagine that and um, the sexual assaults were rough the the bras between mom and dad were, were rough the street gang fight members were rough and then every Sunday of course it was perfection and everybody dressed up perfectly and they all went to mass and I just couldn't get it and there he was and I didn't have recall at the conscious recall at that time but there was that little two-year-old boy dead now on a cross 
and they had created these organized man-made religions. And I, I just, I wasn't, um, I guess you would say it just wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't agreeing with it. It wasn't resonating with me, the story that they were telling me, because something inside of me, you know, was like it knew something else. And I didn't understand that it's such a young child. And the breaking point was when I turned uh, 10 years old. And Roman Catholics have a ritual, what they call confirmation. And so, you know, you, you have to all get dressed up and all the family members come and you're in there. And then either a cardinal or an archbishop or somebody from the Roman Catholic Church uh, shows up and he has a special little gold staff and, you know, he touches the child or whatever and you get this little certification. And it's basically like when you're a child, when you're first born, uh, you go through baptism and you don't have really any say, right? Because you're not conscious, you're not aware, and your parents baptize you and basically give you to God. At confirmation, when you're 10, it's basically now you are dedicating your life to God. So the story went that, you know, 300-some people in the Roman Catholic Church, and my mom, of course, and dad are all there, and uh, all the relatives are there, and they're planning a little get-together afterwards, and I'm in line, and I'm quite tall, and I was like one of the second to the last people in line, and we're going, 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 and as I get closer, I'm seeing that the children in front of me are having to kneel in front of this man. They're kneeling. They're being made to kneel in front of him and then kiss this blessed, as they called it, blessed emerald ring on his hand. And the emerald ring was large. I mean, it was like a parasolin ring. It would have been like a 10-carat ring. <laughs> and I'm like, as I was going toward him, I'm like, no, 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 no. This isn't going to happen. Not only am I not going to kneel before this man that's dressed in these elaborate handmade robes and a cone head and all the, I'm not kissing that ring. I mean, I, it wasn't like it didn't make sense. I was 10 years old. I was a kid, right? What do I know? But something inside of me, my soul was saying, no, no, we will not conform. We will not obey. You are not kissing his blessed ring and you are not kneeling before him. And it was my turn. And all eyes were on me. And behind this archbishop were two other, you know, important priest men, and they had staffs as well in their hand. And I just looked at him, and I, I looked right in his eyes, and I was like, you're, you're, you're fake. You don't represent God. There was like nothing. All it was was just human men dressed up in all these handmade, you know, uh, hand-embroidered clothes and gems and jewels and all of this stuff, you know, and up on this like, almost like a, a, a chair for a king. And I would not kneel. I absolutely would not kneel. And one of the guys behind him took his staff, his Christian Catholic staff, that had all these emeralds and jewels on it as well, and striked my right shoulder in front of all the congregation and told me to kneel before him. It was an order. It was a demand. I said no. Well, <laughs> that, that archbishop that was confirming the children that day. He looked into my eyes, and you know, I think he saw the same eyes that the centurion saw, that Roman centurion. 
He knew he wasn't dealing with an ordinary human anymore. He knew that I had seen something or had been exposed to something, that I, in fact, was not of this world also, even though I wasn't even aware of it, because the look in his eyes confirmed everything. It was almost as he had an awakening, and he couldn't pretend anymore either. And he got very uncomfortable and very nervous. And then he finally just, he gave me the hand and just said, go, go, go. Well, that night when I got back home and all the relatives were there, oh boy. I mean, from all of them. Now, you can imagine my aunt and uncle and all these people never lifted a finger, never did anything for me when they'd see me with black and blue marks on me, when they knew my father and my grandfather would sexually assault me. Nobody said anything. Nobody cared. Back then in the 50s, it was family secrets. They just swept it under the rug, and that's just the way it was. And then on Sunday, they all get in their perfect little Sunday clothes. They go to Roman Catholic Church. They're all saints. They're all going to heaven. And that's just the way it was. And women and little girls, you don't say anything. Because I remember even asking my mom at one point, my mother, I was like, you know, I, I, why do you let him do this to me, right? And she said, well, the church says that, you know, if, if I go to the church and I go to the priest and I ask for a divorce, that not only will I go to hell, but you're going to go to hell too. Because once you get a divorce, that's it. You're just owned by the church. And then we're all going to go to hell. So I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And I'm like, and that means I get to get sexually assaulted every night? I, I get raped by my own father and my grandfather, and then that's the price I have to pay so we can go to heaven? <laughs> None of this made any sense to me at all as a child. So when I came home, everybody hated my guts, and it was pretty normal. You know, it was like, you know, who do you think you are? How could you have done this? You didn't kneel. You didn't kiss his blessed ring. Oh, my God. I mean, on and on and on. And after all the relatives left, I got literally, I... It was so close to death, what they did to me. They threw me up against the wall so many times. And that was the first time that I packed my bags. And I was only 10. And I left home. And I lived down the mm-hmm. streets. Yeah. So let me ask you, when this past life regression happened and you were able to kind of piece all these things together, you know, right. having this experience, having more of an understanding probably why you reincarnated as this, you know, female, this young girl in the the tough projects of Chicago. Um, You you know, what happened to your consciousness then and moving forward from this experience? From the moment of the regression? After, after the regression. After the regression. It was was a saving grace because from the time I was incarnated in this lifetime, April, I didn't realize I was different or why I was different, and it, to me, and I had from from very young age, two, three, four, or five years old, I was having lucid dreaming, out of body experiences, uh, premonitions. I mean, just on and on and on. Like my spiritual awareness, spiritual abilities were profound, literally from birth. And when you when you're not in someone else's consciousness or someone else's body, right? you just assume 
everybody has the same abilities and everybody's experiencing life the same way. So even from a young age, when I, and I talk about one of, one of the stories, I was five years old in the book when uh, the angels came and got me and I'm like, okay, and I, you know, leave my body. It was pretty normal for me at that time. That's what you do. That's what everybody does. That's what's called sleep. You go to sleep and then you leave your body and you go up to the ceiling and then you go into the astral planes. I thought everybody did this every night. And next thing you know, I found myself in a burning house and my assignment the angels gave me was to go wake up the children and go wake up the dog and bring them outside, which I did. And when I woke up the next morning, got back in my body, come to the kitchen looking for breakfast. I'm like, wow, you know, last night, oh, wow, what did you do? Because last night I had to go get these kids out of fire and I'm, blah, 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 and I'm talking about it. And next thing you know, my father looks at me and he had just read the, about the story about the fire in the paper in the Chicago Tribune. So, and beating again. So I didn't understand. I'm thinking, well, don't, don't get, they get assignments too, right? Don't the angels like talk to them too? Don't they have out of body experiences too? Uh, can't they see dead people too? So when I had the regression, that changed everything. Because then it was like the validation, it was the mere reflection. It brought back that moment when that child Jesus awakened me. And when in fact, he gave me the same consciousness. He basically brought me to who and where he was at. And I reincarnated with that. And I just was a package deal and I just assumed, right? Everyone on earth is like this, right? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> they've been proving me wrong <laughs> for 60-some years. They're not like this. So the, the regression was profoundly healing for me, and it freed me. It, it really just sealed the deal. It was like, now I understand who I am, why I am the way I am, and why, and I, then I was also at 39 years of age, which I also share in the book, the angels, I had an angel appear to me, and uh, profoundly appear to me, and even allowed itself to be photographed, and I shared the picture of the of the angel in the book as well. And from that moment on, they had awakened my gift of healing. And I've been laying hands on people and animals ever since. I mean, exactly what the, the young child Jesus was did in his later years also when he became an adult. So it's almost like he gave me his consciousness. And it was in this lifetime, since they killed me so properly in that lifetime, when I came back in this lifetime, I basically picked off right where I left off after my execution. And now was allowed through human form again, in a different time period, of course, and as a female. But I was allowed to manifest the consciousness that he seated me with 2,000 years ago. And the work that you're doing now with people, are they uh, sessions in person, or is it over Skype? Do you do long distance healing? I do, or yeah, I do all long distance. Yeah, I do all long distance by phone, and um, and as you and, and I didn't know that either. When I first started, people did come to me, and they were traveling literally from all over the United States, uh, coming to see me, uh, and also they would bring their animals as well. And then you know, the more and more as word got out about it, people of course were calling me from other locations and saying they can't come. And one day I just said, you know, 
I'll just pick up the phone and call you. And because I don't even understand how it works anyway, right? It's all about energy. It's about soul. So I just let it happen. So now I just do everything by phone. Wow. Well, amazing. And I know that this isn't the only book that you wrote. I mean, you have two other books. Um, one is the best-selling guide to spiritual interpretations of your dreams, where do you go at night, and then also miracles and a prophetic message from an angel. Um, so you have a lot on your website. It also looks like, too, you know, given your history and, you know, incarnation in this lifetime and all the abuse that you went to went through, that you also work with um, sexual abuse survivors, people have been through emotional abuse, and I'm sure that even through this incarnation, this experience, you're probably really able to heal those at a deep level, having the memory of it, of what it's like to go through that in this lifetime as well. Oh, absolutely, April. And and, and people of, of, of uh, skin color, uh, I had a lot of Jewish people, uh, survivors that had gone through the um, Holocaust, that actually survived the Holocaust, and have come to me and worked with me. And also people who were victims and died during the Holocaust and reincarnated, and they were getting flashbacks in this lifetime and coming to me as well. And we worked through that. And, you know, it's it's it's. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really out of the box. I've always been out of the box, you know, as far as thinking in this lifetime. So even though I had an antiquity man show up in my mirror and quite didn't know exactly what it was all about, you know, I proceeded and took the steps. But a lot of people, you know, April, when they have flashbacks or their children, young children, two, three, four, five years old, are having flashbacks of former lifetimes, you know, just the everyday mentality today, it's like people don't talk about this, you know, in the norm world, right? And it's not really recognized or accepted. And so it's kind of like, you know, well, it's just a bad dream or, you know, it frightens them. And so when they talk to me, when they come to me, and I'm so matter of fact about it, and I just bring it out on the table to deal with it, you know, it, it's, it's beyond profound uh, transformation for them to realize the fact that they are a soul, that they're a consciousness, it's energy. You can't destroy it. It just, it continues no matter what. You, you exist in a body, you exist out of a body, and we just continue and continue to experience life in many different forms and also without forms. It's shocking for a lot of people that come to me. I think that's the big challenge for them when they first contact me because they're almost like at that stage, like, what's in my mirror? They really don't know, right, what's happening to them. So, and once you get through the fear, and then you could get back to the old cell memory, that's where everything gets released. But then, most of them are like, they can't go back to their old life again. You know, just like I couldn't right. go back to my old life as a centurion. I mean, I never could have picked up my sword and started using it on people, you know, just because some exactly. guy named Caesar Augustus right. told me what to do, right? So it's the same thing even today, 2,000 years later with the clients that come to me, is that they don't know what to do. It really totally transforms their perceptiveness of life. 
and they no longer see themselves anymore and they can't function the way they used to function anymore because once that soul is awakened like that they have to proceed forward and that causes challenges I don't want to say I'm the cause for divorces <laughs> on my path as a counselor unfortunately I do deal with a lot of divorces mostly the women that come to me and then the husbands are like what you know yeah we're all crazy right. yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> well and you, you also have a YouTube channel called spiritual wisdom TV if our listeners want to check that out um, and can you also let our listeners know your website and where they can find you if they would like to call you for a healing that would be great the website is www.spiritualwisdomtv.com that's www.spiritualwisdomtv.com and the book we've been talking about today is Jesus and a Roman Centurion, a past life memoir, and it's available on Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble and you name it. Well, thank you so much, Clementina, for sharing your story with us and I'm sure opening up our listeners to just a whole other world and, and concept of things. So I really appreciate you agreeing to come on our podcast and be a guest. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, April. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.